Meanwhile, the Fed's golf gaffe. The nation's central bankers, who have had a rough year in headlines, are letting us all know how they learned about the horrors of inflation. Philadelphia Federal Reserve President Patrick Harker gave an in-person speech at the Center for Financial Stability in New York the other day. Because of the pandemic, it was his first in a while, so he stuck to public speaking basics, kicking things off with an ice-breaking joke. I know I'm a little out of practice, because just as I was about to begin speaking, I made sure my mute button wasn't on, he cracked. In all seriousness, shifting to a graver theme, he mentioned the old saw about being cursed to live in interesting times. The novel coronavirus, he said, has tragically killed at least 6 million people globally and around 1 million here in the United States, adding, that's the equivalent of a city larger than San Francisco or Seattle. Russia has also invaded Ukraine, he said, fomenting death and destruction and spurring a humanitarian crisis in the heart of Europe. Next in this parade of calamities, the scourge of inflation a problem so serious that it touched him and his colleagues personally. One of our contacts, for instance, mentioned whopping membership fee increases at his golf club, Parker said, suggesting this summer may be a good time to play at your local muni instead. Inflation is so bad, you might have to play at a public course this summer, to quote Conrad's Kurtz, the horror, the horror. Adding to the irony is the fact that the Fed in recent years tried to reach out to the masses, holding what it called Fed Listens events in 2019. Local business figures and other players offered insight into what was going on with folk, as part of what the bank called a broad-based inclusive approach. If some of our contacts are preparing to golf at public courses this summer, is the kind of on-ground intel they're getting, they may want to recalibrate. Parker was the second Fed official in a week to offer a personal window on price hikes. On March 24th, Board of Governors member Christopher Waller gave a speech warning of the red-hot housing market, which he called a singular feature of the post-COVID economy. What would he, Christopher Waller, know about it? Trust me, Waller said. I know it's red-hot because I am trying to buy a house here in Washington, and the market is crazy. It would have been funnier if he'd said, and the market is crazy, yo. But as is, his talk was interesting. Waller, who as a Fed governor makes roughly $203,700 a year, went on to address the seemingly contradictory phenomenon of a boom in home buying even though the nation is seeing a historic rise in home prices, soaring as much as 35% since the start of the pandemic. How could that happen? Waller speculated. It could be that time spent at home during the pandemic made renters more interested in owning a home, or that people are getting help from family or friends with down payments or that some people are choosing to buy smaller homes than they would have a few years ago when prices were lower. Whatever the causes, the increase in first-time buyers is clear. Waller didn't mention one of the primary factors contributing to home buying, the plunging cost of mortgage borrowing, one of the many byproducts of the turbocharged economy Jerome Powell and the Fed built in the post-CARES Act world. In 2020, the first year of the pandemic, a staggering 63% of wannabe homebuyers made offers on homes without even seeing them in person, mirroring the blind buying mania that showed up in other markets. Waller also didn't mention that mortgage financing wasn't just more available to individuals. Passing over the not-at-all-horrifying phenomenon of private equity companies like Cerebus Capital Management collecting over 34,000 homes in a fund and getting set to buy more 
with the aid of financing like a $606 million loan deal struck with Morgan Stanley last November. Along with other PE firms like Pretty and Partners, 70,000 homes as of late last year, Amherst Group, 34,000, Nextpoint, 17,000, and Blackstone, 17,000, these whales have been swallowing up real estate to join in the fun of being institutional single-family renters. Now, instead of handing a monthly check to a flesh-and-blood human being, more and more Americans will experience the joys of renting from bloodless conglomerates owned by expert value extractors like Steve Swarzman and Don Mullen, who are not merely inaccessible to complaints, but whose corporeal existence has probably been moved to tax-exempt zones in the fourth dimension. Waller skipped over all of this, preferring to speculate about family and friends financing the housing boom, likely because private equity firms just finished up their second monster year in a row, doing a record $1.2 trillion in deals in 2021 alone. These acquisition sprees are massively concentrating American wealth in fewer and fewer hands and would not have been possible without the fire hose of Fed cash that extended almost limitless credit to institutional players in 2020 and 2021. From March 2020 on, the Fed went on a buying spree, pumping roughly $5 trillion into the economy, growing its balance sheet to above $9 trillion. The bank's purchasing programs rescued scores of companies from penury and reversed an incipient market crash, but were also a gigantic ongoing subsidy to anyone owning financial assets. The trend in the last few years has seen the gap between salaried workers and asset owners, renters and landlords, institutional or otherwise, widened everywhere. Billionaires gained $4.1 trillion around the world during the pandemic. And in just the U.S., billionaire wealth nearly doubled, from $2.9 trillion to $5 trillion. As of late last year, just 2,750 people globally controlled 3.5% of the world's wealth, up from 1% in 1995. The sudden preoccupation in news with tightening and engineering a soft landing from the highs of the COVID economy is being couched as a grave business, with central bankers weighed down by crushing strategic dilemmas. Some of this is legit, but some is self-serving PR, coming from officials and private sector actors alike who'd rather the public not look back too much at the Fed-fueled orgy of the last two years. A neat, non-disastrous ending one that doesn't inspire the wrong sorts of questions about the last two years of obscene wealth gains, would be beneficial to some. During the pandemic, there was comparatively little outcry about figures like Dallas Fed Chief Robert Kaplan, Boston Chief Eric Rosengren, and Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida making sudden, million-dollar trading decisions just ahead of Fed policy changes likely to increase the value of these personal holdings. Clarida, for instance, moved between $1 million and $5 million out of the PIMCO bond fund and into a stock ETF on February 27, 2020, just before Fed Chairman Jerome Powell issued a statement hinting at Fed intervention that would send the equity market into a two-year boom. The punchline is these behaviors were not illegal and permitted under Fed rules. The consequences could only be described as hilarious. Clarida, for instance, resigned two whole weeks before the end of his term. I was in Detroit yesterday, interviewing former employees of a storied Michigan retail company. The firm had been profitable until it was bought by an $11 billion private equity fund, one that decided to loot the firm's real estate holdings before mass-firing its workers and sending it into bankruptcy in the first weeks of the pandemic. Two years on, 
There are thousands of former employees who'd go berserk in the streets of Detroit today if they could get within pitchforking distance of their former bosses. If a Fed official like Harker can't find people like that in Philly and needs to rely on rumors about rising greens fees to see the impact of his policy decisions, we're in trouble. And not the funny kind, either. Thanks for listening to the audio version of this article. For more, visit taibi.substack.com.